So I will address the uh, elephant in the room or the, my brace in the room uh, so that you're not left up here wondering what in the world is wrong with my knee. Um, I uh, went skiing a couple weekends ago and skiing did not agree with me. Um, so I have, just for you, so you could be praying for me, I have torn my ACL entirely uh, and I have sprained another um, ligament in my muscle, and so I need to do some physical therapy on it, and then probably, most likely, will be doing some surgery and then recovering that. So over the next several months, you will be seeing me in varying forms of braces and limping and energy around here. So if you see me, like, walking a little faster than I should, you can you can uh, stop me and tell me to take my time, relax, um, for my own good. Um, I'm in no significant pain or anything like that. There's just a little bit of discomfort and soreness and weakness. Uh, so I might sit here on this the whole time, and I might not. It depends on how uh, excited I get while we're preaching. So um, so I just wanted you guys all to be aware of that and not let that be a distraction to what we wanted to talk about today. So I was... Hmm... I was writing this sermon, and I had really I had written out sort of the introduction to this, and I didn't like how it sounded, and I didn't like how it sounded because I was like, sounds really harsh, and I don't think that that is the tone. It's not the tone that Jesus has in any of the passages I'm dealing with today. I think Jesus is calling all of us and each and every one of us in this room towards something, but I don't think he's doing so in a harsh way. So rather than doing it exactly the way I was starting to write it, I'm kind of freestyling today. Um, So we'll see what happens with that. Um, So we're in this sermon series called Easter People. And Easter People, like what, what does Easter People mean, right? Like Easter's a holiday... Um, on the calendar that has to do with bunnies and eggs for some reason, um, right? Like, what does it mean to actually be Easter people? Also, just by the way, like, have you guys ever thought about the strains? Of, like, bunnies don't lay eggs. Like, I, <laughs> like, I've always just thought it very strange that, like, like, did, did he, did he steal the eggs and then he's bringing them? Like, does the bunny, is this a strange bunny that does lay eggs? Like, I don't know. So things that I've always wondered and people think I'm strange for thinking about, but, um, but what does it mean, obviously, to be Easter people and particularly in context to Christ? And we're doing these sort of, not vignettes, but kind of, highlights of different people from Jesus's ministry and from his life and from around him in order to show how they were impacted by Jesus and how they were shaped and formed by the gospel. Because our goal is not simply to be uh, individuals or Christians who are like Easter once a year people. Right? People who are shaped by the gospel uh, just one day out of the year. Or who uh, kind of just use the gospel or Christianity as a tagline to their life. But is daily and consistently being transformed by Jesus, who he is, and his work. Right Here at Conduit, we're fond of saying that um, 
Jesus, it's all about Jesus, and the good news of Jesus changes everything, has the power to change everything. And we believe that. And we don't think that that's something that applies to just uh, two hours on a Sunday morning. It's something that we believe applies to your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday, and your Saturday, to your good days and your bad days. And so here, I think today, God is calling us to something bigger than maybe what I'll call comfortable Christianity, right? I think there is a, and I, again, I don't mean this harshly because I mean this as like someone who probably has a tendency to slip into that myself, right? is to run into a place where we're living our lives in such a way as where Jesus, the gospel, Christianity, acts more as a bumper sticker we put on the car of our life, um, rather than actually inviting Jesus in to take over the wheel and decide where we're going. Do you guys get what I'm saying? We, we can become so comfortable with associating ourselves with being a Christian, but are we actually being consistently formed in our innermost heart and soul by Jesus? Are we consistently communing and spending time with him, or are we simply talking about him or playing at church or playing at being a Christian? Right? Like A lot of times, I think for the last several decades, church culture, particularly our thread of church culture, has liked to use the term uh, religious people, right? We don't want to be religious Christians, right? And we mean religious in that particular context with a negative connotation. I don't think it has to have a negative connotation, but that's the parlance that we've probably used it a lot in. And we're saying that like, to be religious means to be sort of going throughout the acts of being religious or doing Christianity without ever having any internal substance or relationship. Maybe you've heard the tagline, it's a relationship, not a religion, right? And so I think we can talk about that. I think that's a little bit of what today's topic is going to be talking about. How do we not be religious people, but how do we be in a relationship with Jesus? But I don't think that's, I think there's another bit of slice of the pie that we maybe don't talk about or maybe has come to it exist as a response to the, um, I don't want to be religious. And there's, I think there's this other kind of place. And I, the only way I know to describe that is kind of comfortable, comfortable Christianity, right? The religious person is probably like best described as maybe concerned with the things of the church without being concerned for the church or being concerned about things surrounding Jesus, but not actually being concerned about Jesus. So maybe there's a higher, like the, the most cliche thing would be to say, like concerned about the carpet and the worship style, but not actually concerned about the God that we're worshiping, right? And and we can think about that, but like, and we might say, oh yeah, it was so silly to be concerned about the, the, the carpet. But we get concerned about some things, right? Like, we can get concerned and we can get really caught up in like, you know, if only this church would do things the way I think they should be doing. They would, would be a lot better. 
right? If we did this, if we did it this way, right, we become concerned with our own preferences. We might not quite fit the caricature, but we're still falling into a place where church and life as a Christian in this community is beginning to orient ourselves around us and less around God. That's what I kind of mean by when I say religious. When I say comfortable Christian, I'm more meaning following Jesus doesn't cost anything, right? Being a Christian saying that Jesus is part of my life is, is fine and dandy until it, you know, conflicts with something that I really, really want or I really care about. Right? Or till it becomes inconvenient, or that it's just, you know, it's a little bit easier to, you know, like I said, the bumper on the bumper, bumper on the back of the car, but Jesus not at the wheel, right? I, get, I use God as the blessing machine for the decisions I want to make. And, and I think that is growing in prevalence more than the religious Christian. I think we struggle more to be the comfortable Christian the person who's comfortable coming to church every so often, being religious, using religious language, but are we being transformed by Jesus in our inner selves? Are we meeting with him on a regular basis? And again, I don't mean this to be particularly harsh because I don't think Jesus' words for us are harsh. I think they're grace-filled, but I do think that they are calling us to wake up a little bit. I think they're calling us to some self-examination to say, are we truly Easter people? How do we become Easter people and not just religious or comfortable Christians? How do we actually become shaped by Jesus in a complete way, in an entire way, in a way that begins to impact how I interact with people, how I see people, how I deal with stress, how I deal with disappointment, is not just how I just want to, but it's how Jesus is calling me to. How do we become shaped and become true followers of Jesus? And today, our example of this, the, the person who we're going to examine, the Easter person who we're going to talk about, is the Apostle Peter, right? The disciple Peter. Now, Peter, you know, last week we talked about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene doesn't have, you know, we did a whole long discussion about that. She doesn't have a ton of passages in the Bible that talk about her, a couple that say some really awesome, really amazing things. The Gospels, on the other hand, have a lot to say about Peter, now, I'm not going to by any means, I've, I've cut, I've pared this down, trust me. Um, that we're not going to cover by any means all the stories concerning Peter or all the passages dealing with him. Uh, I think we're going to, I want to trace a bit of a thread of his life with Christ, of a place where I think Peter started, place where Jesus kind of met him and then kind of transformed him and called him out to be truly a Easter person. And uh, I don't want to be overly harsh on Peter either. I think a lot of times uh, pastors get up here and they're just like, well, you see Peter, he just went ahead and stuck, in his, stuck his foot in it again. Um, I think we can be overly harsh on Peter. And I think we're overly harsh on Peter because uh, we don't realize how much like Peter we ourselves are. 
And so today, I want to come and follow that. So we're going to trace Peter, and we're going to start with um, Peter's kind of confession in John chapter 6. So if you would, you can turn with me there. That's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 6. Now, this is a... This is where Jesus' ministry is kind of starting to starting to kind of ramp up a little bit. And I mean that because Jesus has kind of he's been going around, he's been doing some teaching, um, and he's been doing some pretty big miracles. And he got this pretty big crowd that was following him around because he fed a whole bunch of people with some fish and loaves, if you've ever heard that story. And they're all like, man, this guy's like, like endless Chick-fil-A. Um, like, we just got to follow this guy around, right? And so they're following him around, and Jesus is like, look, you guys are following me not because you're actually interested in me. You're interested in the food I gave you, right? You want to see the next cool thing that I'm going to do right? Um, and he kind of says some pretty harsh things, and he kind of says some pretty uh, controversial things. He says that he's greater than Moses, which would have been an absolutely, like, Moses was the guy, right? Someone who wrote, like, four of the books of the Old Testament, their, their law, and he, or not four, five, um, and he was this important person, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than Moses. You just don't realize it yet. And they all get really kind of upset about that. So they all leave. And then Jesus kind of turns around. I'm in verse 60. Um, well, hold on. Where am I? Oh, yeah. I'm in verse 66. And Jesus kind of turns around to his disciples. You get the sense, the picture from this story that there were hundreds of people following Jesus and they're all just like, we're out. This guy's kind of weird. Um, and then Jesus turns around to his 12 uh, in verse 66, and he says this, From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him, no longer followed Jesus. And then he says to his disciples, he says, You do not want to leave me too, do you? He kind of asks this question. I'm not entirely sure how rhetorical Jesus was being, but he asked the 12, Do you want to leave as well? And then Simon Peter, the one who always has to say something, um, speaks up and he answers the Lord and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a pretty good response, all things considered, right? Um, it's not entirely clear as to whether or not um, Peter is understanding that Jesus is himself God. Uh, in this passage. He certainly seems to understand that Jesus is probably the Messiah, right? The Holy One of God. He's putting Jesus very much up there. So we can see this as a response of faith, but I find it really interesting how Jesus responds to Peter's uh, saying, right? Peter, Jesus doesn't say, you're right, Peter, good job, right? He, he seems to rather give this answer, which I find rather kind of humorous. He says, then Jesus says, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. And if you're like, ooh, Luke, are you going to talk about Judas? And I'm like, no, I'm not. 
Cameron is next week. <laughs> um, <laughs> so tune in for that. I think that'll be a really good sermon. I think, I think I've only ever heard one sermon on Judas Iscariot, and uh, I think that's too few. I think he's someone we need to wrestle with more. Um, but Jesus kind of gives this strange response. Why is that what Jesus says instead of just affirming and saying, Peter, yeah, you're right, Peter. Um, And the reason I think is because, at least in my imagination, how I'm kind of seeing this text is it kind of seems like Peter is that kid in the class who always puts his hand up first. Teacher, teacher, I've got the answer right? Um, And he's the one who's always got the smart Alec answer, and he wants to show how smart he is. And Jesus kind of gives him this answer, and he says, well, he kind of just kind of says, well, you seem to think that you're the ones that, like, um, are choosing not to leave, but, like, actually, I chose you, right? And and actually, maybe my choosing of you 12 has more to do with the fact that you're still here than not. And just because you are here— Right? Just because you haven't left yet doesn't mean that you actually are still kind of like following me or that you are completely on board here because there is someone who is not and he's among you. And so Peter or Jesus is kind of pushing back on Peter a little bit and saying like, look, like I know you think you're maybe better than all of those people who just walked away, but you might not be as more better than you think. I don't know what the right superlative is there. Um, so he's kind of, I get, I get this sense that in a lot of the way that we can kind of read Peter in his sort of interactions, he's always like you kind of hear he's described as the one who seems to speak up the most and kind of say the most rash thing. And we can kind of read and understand that as Jesus, as Peter wanting to demonstrate his sort of like commitment to Jesus. He's trying to say, like, I'm the best disciple because I, I'm, I, like, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the holy one. I'm going to be the first one to say it. So, like, I'm the leader, right? He's kind of demonstrating and putting himself out there kind of publicly and kind of showing himself to be perhaps a better disciple than the others. And that's not a far stretch because the disciples certainly had competition amongst themselves. Uh, the amount of passages in the Gospels where the disciples seem to uh, deteriorate into a sort of, well, I'm the better disciple because, you know, did you see that? Jesus just handed me an apple. <laughs> like, he likes me more. Like, and like that's how silly it gets. Um, like, I, there's a scene where, where some of the disciples' mom comes and's like, hey, could you, like, let my sons be, like, your best disciples and sit next to you in eternity? Um and so they deteriorate consistently into this competition amongst themselves over, I'm the better disciple, I'm the better follower of Christ, I'm going to be like, I'm the best. And they kind of run into that. And so it's not far-fetched to say that perhaps Jesus, that Peter is just the one who was the most vocal about doing that. And that some of his responses may have been coming from a place of um, wanting to kind of prove his followership of Jesus in a rather public manner. And so I want to kind of point this out, and this is, I think, um, I think this is a key thing, and this might sound so simple, um, but it is very true, and that is that pride is the great destroyer of authenticity, right? 
If, if, if I want to be authentic in something, pride is like the one thing that will eat that away, right? Because pride means that I have an ulterior motive in what I'm doing. I, I'm doing it not because of the thing itself. I'm doing it because I'm wanting to build myself up. And so what I am wondering, and you may disagree with me, but I don't think that it's a far stretch to say that there's some pride in Peter. That Peter has some pride in what he's doing. That he's perhaps trying to build himself up as the preeminent disciple of saying, like, look, Jesus, like, I've got the right answers. Like, I'll be the one that never leaves you. And the thing is, is that undercuts that authenticity while he's like headed in the right direction. The thing that is constantly undercutting him is his self-assurance, his pride, his self-building up. And that is why I think Jesus so often kind of keeps Peter, just, he encourages him. But he always kind of is also encourage and rebuke him at the same time. Jesus kind of does this like, yes, Peter, but. That's kind of how he always responds to him in the Gospels. And so we can see this continuing on. Well, before I, before I move on to the next passage, the next piece of Peter's story, like, I think we need to recognize that that sits in with our own souls, right? That we can, like, if you've been in church long enough, not everyone here has been to church and been in church a long time, but some of you have. And if you've been here long enough, there is church politics to be played, right? There's church power games, there's church um, social dynamics, like who knows who, who's been here the longest, like who's the real gatekeepers, right? Like that happens in any church, right? And that can all be full of self, building up self-importance, feeling like, well, you know, like I wasn't, if I stopped coming to this church, everything would just fall apart. Right? Like, and, and that's not true of either me or Cameron, right? Like, like, neither of us are required for this church to be what it is, right? Because the church isn't supposed to rest on an individual or a group of individuals. It's supposed to rest on Christ, yeah. right? And I think all too often, a subtle form of pride can sneak in to the way that we do our week-to-week worship, the way that we see and view ourselves inside of this community, right? Do we, uh, do we look down on other people who come and sit in these pews? Oh, they, they don't come and attend as often as I do, right? Is that, is, is that a question? Is that a thought that we, like, we're, they're, not, they're just not as committed to the mission as I am? Right? When we're in this comparison mode, we're living in a place of pride. And we are living in a place of self rather than a place of being centered around Christ. And, and so we need to be aware of this, like, genuinely. And so Peter kind of continues to have this attitude throughout the ministry of Christ And I want to go to Luke chapter 22. So I'm going to switch Gospels for a moment. Um, Because Luke um, records a particular uh, phrasing of this conversation with Peter that I think is important to to talk about. I do want to say that, like, um, Peter, you know, we've got the 
four Gospels, and the four Gospels are describing the same events from different vantage points or viewpoints. And so there will be slight variations in emphasis or um, particularly like they will um, uh, highlight certain details and perhaps gloss over or omit certain details in order to make different points. It's not that they're in disagreement, it's that they are simply providing different vantage points of the same thing. And Peter and his um, conversation here with Jesus at the Last Supper and his eventual fulfillment of this conversation with Jesus is one of the few things that occurs in all four Gospels without fail, right? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or there's, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, sin as in sync, synoptic, and so there's an optic as in seeing, so they see the same, like they align a lot. They have a lot of overlap. A lot of the wording is exactly the same. They kind of were drawing from the same source. John's a little bit different. It has some more unique passages and tends to be its kind of own thing, a little bit separate from the other three. And so if there's something that happens in all four Gospels, not just in the three, but in all four, like, you can betcha it was important. And then it, you know, and so I'm in Luke chapter 22, This is Jesus up here, and he's talking and eating and having his last time with his 12 disciples. And there's this, he has so much deep teaching during this time, and so much of it is recorded. But he comes to this point in the dinner where he stops, and he has a conversation with Peter. And so this is Luke chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 31. Jesus turns to Peter, or Simon Peter, as is his kind of full name, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So, first thing that Jesus is saying, just that sentence, you might, what in the world is Jesus saying? He's saying, Simon, Simon. So he's addressing Simon, but then he says, Satan has asked to sift, so like wheat, so it would have been kind of like a colander, separating out, separating out all of the different bits and pieces out of the wheat head and all the things like that. The, the best English way to say that is Jesus, like if we were to say it in modern English, we could say, Satan has asked to pick you apart bit by bit. Satan has asked to break you down. And Jesus is saying that of all of the disciples. He says, um, he says, um, he has asked to sift all of you as we, he's asked to pick apart all of the disciples. But he's choosing to say something particularly to Simon, because there's perhaps some concern about how Simon is going to handle this, how Peter's going to react. And Jesus says in verse 32, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is saying, this is going to happen to you. You're going to get picked apart. But I'm praying specifically for you, Peter. I'm praying that when this happens, your faith doesn't fail. It might falter, but I hope and pray, and I'm praying specifically that it will not ultimately fail. And that because of that, you'll turn back and you'll encourage the others who have also been picked apart. And Peter, rather than receiving that, he says, but he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
And Jesus answered him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. In the comfort of uh, having had just a warm meal up in a nice room, Peter is ready to go to death for Jesus. Um, But Jesus is like, Peter, you might be saying that right now, but before the day's over, you're going to say that you don't even know who I am three times. Like, you're not even going to be willing to say, I know that guy, let alone go to prison with me or go to death with me. Right? He's going to pick him apart. So Jesus is praying specifically that Peter's difficult sifting would not lead to an ultimate failure. Now, this kind of brought up a thought to me, and I think often as Christians, we kind of feel like we kind of let down God a lot and that we fail. No one is perfect. But I want to point out, and I want to just say that there is no true failure in the Christian life other than that of walking away or remaining unmoved by God. The only way you can fail in the Christian life in an ultimate sense or truly fail would be to simply walk away to, or to simply say, no, God, I'm not moving. I'm not going not to follow you. Those would be the two things that, like, it, like we all mess up. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fail. We're all going to have best intentions like Peter, and we're all going to not keep those exactly the way we think and hope we would. And Jesus is saying, and he, let, let, you, let me tell you this, that Jesus is praying for you, and that like Peter, he's praying that it, you would not ultimately fail, that even though your faith might falter, that it would not fall away entirely. And so I think that is an important thing for us to recognize because sometimes we get into this place of, like Cameron was kind of talking about with that announcement, of Christian perfectionism. I've got to be this, like, all put together and I can't have hard things in my life and I can't struggle with things and I can't have these difficult emotions and, like, everything's got to have put together and I've got to just do it all just so right because if I don't, that means I'm not a good Christian. And that keeps us in a place of never actually moving forward in what God has for us, right? Peter later goes on to be the leader of the early church, right? He's kind of the, kind of is one of the main, well, he's obviously, he's one of the 12 disciples, but he, among the 12, he even is a leader. And what kind of leader would he have been if he had just stayed in a place of pride and self-assurance? Getting a little bit ahead of myself, but why did Jesus allow this? Right? Jesus is like, Satan has asked to sift and to pick you apart. Why did Jesus let this happen? Jesus could have said, oh, no, no, like, just not going to touch my 12. They're not going to be impacted by this. Why did Jesus allowed this. And I can think there's a plethora, a lot of reasons why Jesus probably allowed this, which I will never know. But I think one of the reasons um, 
and one of the many reasons is probably, I think, is that he wants to have Peter grow through experiencing trial and hardship. Because it's easy to follow Jesus when it's convenient, but only Easter people will stay amidst of trial. Right? This is, again, we're back to comfortable Christians. We're back to religious Christians. I will follow Jesus as long as I get my way, or as long as it ex- looks the way I want it to look. I will follow Jesus as long as he remains the vending machine for the things I want. Right? Uh, the, this, is, this is one of my favorite spiritual anal- analogies, but like, how often do we come and we treat Jesus and we treat God like the spiritual vending machine? Well, I come up and I'm going to pray to him in such a way, I'm going to do so many things, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a good person, come to church, da-da-da, punch in the right numbers in order to get the thing out of the vending machine I want. And that's how we treat God. God, if you do this thing for me, I will do this thing. We try and be transactional. And when we do that, God is nothing more than a vending machine for our idols. Why would God give us the thing that we are going to worship more than him? Why would God work with us in such a way that's only going to build up my own sense of pride so that I feel like I'm more important than Jesus? And so Jesus here is saying, Peter, like, I need you to understand something. In order for you to understand this, you're going to have to kind of be picked apart. You're going to have to go through a trial that's going to chip away some things. In the book of 1 Peter, it talks about going through trials and being purified, our faith being purified like that of gold that goes through fire to be refined. Right When you refine gold, it needs to be heated up so that all the impurities of the gold can be sifted and put away and only the pure gold remaining. Similarly, Jesus here is doing a refining work in the life of Peter and wants to do a refining work in your life. So often when difficulties come, when inconveniences of the Christian life, when life becomes difficult, one of the first things that we might be tempted to cut is church or to cut faith or to cut our quiet time or personal time with Jesus. When that's the last thing we need to cut, right? We probably need more of it. And it might just be so counterintuitive and so difficult for us because when uncertainty comes, when things begin to not play out the way you want them to, the temptation for us and the desire is to grip stronger and tighter onto that steering wheel and to say, no, I'm going to go this way. And Jesus is simply sitting there in the passenger seat and he's saying, look, if you would only go the way I am asking you and calling you to go, you would find that it is a much better end that we would both go to. Jesus is inviting us, I know this sounds like a country song, to let go of the wheel, right? And to go and go in the path in the direction that he is calling us to, right? And so Peter here is going to be going through a trial, Because Jesus, he's like, look, if you're going to lead my church, if you're going to be this um, disciple, you you are going to have to become an Easter person. You're going to have to be transformed by the gospel and transformed by me. Jesus knows your weaknesses and your failings, and he is still praying for you 
and he's calling you to follow him, and he is not going to quit on you. So, this is the prediction that Jesus gives in his last supper, his last kind of moment with his, one of the last moments with his disciples. Later in the night, they go out, they go to pray in the garden, and Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is taken and arrested, taken to a trial at night. Um, Peter um, ends up at the place where this trial is happening, and I'm going to move forward a little bit to Luke. We're going to stay in the same chapter. It's a long chapter. I'm going to move forward to uh, verse 54 in Luke chapter 22. Now, again, like I said, this is a story that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's in each and every single one of them. Each of them kind of tell it a little bit differently. I'm choosing to use Luke's because of some of the detail that is added here. But in the, I will add one thing that is included in the book of John that I think is important for us to notice or to recognize. And that is that they, these men are out in kind of a courtyard and of this, of the house or of this place where Jesus is being put on trial and at, at night and kind of in secret and behind closed doors. And Peter finds himself at this fire. And in John, John goes out of his way. He doesn't just say that it's a fire. He says that it's a charcoal fire. And you might be like, Luke, why are you going through such lengths to tell us that it was a charcoal fire? Well, just remember that detail, and I'll point it out when it becomes important again later. But here in Luke chapter 22 and verse 54, I'm going to pick up this story. Then seizing him and leading him away, they took him into the house of the high priest. This is talking about Jesus. He's been seized and taken away. Peter followed at a distance. And when there, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight and she looked closely at him and said, this man, this man was with him. This man was with Jesus. But he denied it. Woman, I do not know him, he said. A little later, someone else said to him, you were also one of them, right? Like, and, and, and then Peter again says, man, I am not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, Jesus, turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. So Peter follows Jesus at a distance, and he sits at this firelight, and over the course of conversation of a couple hours, three different people say, you know, like you really look like you were one of his disciples. You seem like you're from the same region, like you're, you're one of them. And Peter again and again, no, I'm not. 
In one of the Gospels, it says that he swears violently that he is not one of the disciples, that he does not know Jesus. And then there comes this moment where maybe Jesus, through a window, or as Jesus is being moved around, and he looks and makes eye contact with Jesus. And Peter remembers the conversation he had a handful of hours earlier that day, that he would be the one to deny Christ three times before the rooster crowed. Peter, who had earlier that night at dinner had said, Oh, Jesus, I won't leave you. I will go to prison with you. Not only that, I will die with you, is now not even willing to acknowledge that he knows who Jesus is, that he has ever met him. Jesus, or Peter, Peter fails in his own conviction. He acts out of fear. Pride and religious acting will always fail when the cost becomes too high. If we are comfortable Christians, if we are religious Christians, if we are following Jesus for anything other than Jesus, there is a price at which we will reach where it no longer becomes worth it. If I'm following Jesus to elevate my own sense of pride, there is a point at which the cost of playing the game of religiosity becomes too high, and I'd rather just not play the game at all. If my motivation is anything other than Jesus, there is a cost that we won't be willing to pay to go any farther. And a lot of times that comes up in trial. Right? Like, Jesus, I have followed you this. I've been obedient this far, but I'm not willing to do that. The reason we're not willing to do that is because we might have some ulterior motives as to why we've been following Jesus. We've maybe not been as centered around the person of Jesus as we may have thought. So Peter has this moment, and he immediately realizes it, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Peter is not, like I, like I said, people can, like, it's easy to become very harsh towards Peter. And it's, and it's why <coughs> I started the message the way that I did. It's because I'm not up here wanting to be overly harsh, I'm wanting to collectively call us to wake up. Collectively calling us to do the difficult work of looking at our own hearts and motives, our own orientation towards Christ. Am I more concerned with the things surrounding Jesus than I am actually concerned with knowing Jesus in an intimate and personal way? Have I lost my focus? Have I become complacent? Have I become comfortable in not actually meeting and knowing Jesus in a personally deep and transformative way? And I've just kind of become comfortable having Jesus be here, but I'm really the one driving and making the decisions. And so... That's not the end of the story. If that was the end of the story for Peter, it would be a rather sad one, but it's not. 
We're going to jump back to the Gospel of John. We go towards the end, John chapter 21. Now Jesus has been crucified and he is resurrected three days later. And he has now started to appear to his disciples on multiple occasions. Um, and this one is a particular is a particularly intimate appearing and detailed account that he has with his disciples. It's one of my favorite passages. John 21. I'm going to start in verse 9, but the disciples were out fishing because many of them were fishermen prior to following Jesus. They weren't catching anything. And then Jesus re-performs a miracle that he had performed earlier on in ministry when he had called them to himself in providing a miraculous catch of an abundance of fish. So Jesus repeats that miracle. And then in verse 9, we're going to pick up that story. Uh, When they landed, they saw a fire burning of coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Remember I said earlier that there was a charcoal fire that they had gathered around in the courtyard? So again, second place in the book of John where there's mention of a charcoal fire. Jesus is now sitting around a charcoal fire and he's preparing food for the disciples who have been out fishing all day, all night. So keep that in mind. Again, around a charcoal fire. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so this is the scene is Peter is now sitting around a charcoal fire, maybe for the first time since that night Jesus had been captured. And rather than sitting around it with a bunch of strangers, he's sitting around it with Jesus and the other men that he was sitting with at the Last Supper. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, Um, There's some debate over what exactly Jesus is talking about when he says, do you love me more than these? Some people seem to think that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than the fish Um, and being a fisherman and all of this? I don't find that a particularly compelling understanding of the passage um, because a number of reasons. Um, I think what this passage is saying, another way of maybe saying it, is Jesus is asking Do you love me more than the other disciples love me? And one of the reasons I think that is a compelling understanding of this passage is because Peter was consistently putting himself forward as like, I will follow you unto death. I will follow you to prison. I know that you're the Holy One. He was the one who was always putting himself out there, again, with that theme of pride. And so, again, they're sharing a meal, the first meal that they've shared since his last supper and his death and crucifixion, where Peter was the guy who, like, said, look, 
Jesus, like these other ones, they might not, they might fall away, they might be sifted, they might struggle in their faith, but I won't. I'm going to go to prison for you, I'm going to die. And Jesus is now, I think, checking his pride a little bit, saying, Peter, do you still think that your love for me is significantly greater than these other men love me? Are you still playing a comparison game? And the thing that Peter replies, he says, do you love me more than this? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than these other people do. He just says, yes, Lord, I love you. He doesn't complicate it. And then Jesus replies by saying, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then in verse 17, the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I think that is a, I mean, it's, this is one of my favorite passages. And it's because it's so deep. And Peter, on that third time, is described as being hurt. And that, all that can tell me is that he, seen, he must have visibly displayed distress, hurt, pain, sorrow over having been asked that question three times in a row like that sitting around a charcoal fire. Because he is reminded of the moment in which he denied Christ three times. And Jesus, and Peter's only reply is simply, Jesus, you know all things. You knew that I would deny you. You knew that I was going to be picked apart and sifted, but you prayed that I would not fail away, fall away, and I have not. Lord, you know my heart. You know that I love you. And he's not playing comparison games. He's not trying to outdo the other disciples. He's simply saying, Jesus, I love you. Now, I'm going to take a moment, because this is a passage that I've heard preached before, and maybe you've been in church long enough to hear this passage preached a number of times, or at least once or twice. Um, and there's a common interpretation of this passage that I just want to dispel because I don't think it's particularly helpful. If you've ever heard a preacher talk about the different words for love in the Greek, right? They talk about ancient Greek had these different words for love, agape, phileo, eros, and another one that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Um, and they like to make that, oh, when you can see that this particular word for love is agape, and agape is an unconditional type of love. And while I think there is some benefit in thinking about the different types of love, because there are those, right? Like, the love I have for different people in my life is different, right? And we can think about those in philosophical categories. I think that's a helpful thing to do. A lot of people will look at this passage and they say, oh, Jesus uses one word for love and Peter uses a different word for love and they kind of go back and forth a little bit. And that is significant because G Peter is saying that he doesn't love um, 
Jesus agape, he loves him phileo, he loves him with a lesser love because he is so beaten down and humbled. And if you've ever heard that interpretation of this passage, I disagree with that interpretation. I think most times in the New Testament, the word that is being used for love is mostly inconsequential. Um, If you study the Greek, if you look at all the different words, there's no convincing argument to show that they use those words with a clear understanding of, like, this is a philosophical, theological category if I use this word for love versus I use this word for love. It's kind of like the way I use the word a minute. Um, I'm from Ohio. I don't know if it's just because I'm from Ohio or the area I'm from in Ohio or just my family, but I can use a minute to describe any period of time I would like, (laughs) right? Um, Oh, like how much longer are we going to be? Oh, we'll be here for a minute. That could mean anywhere from 15 minutes to three hours. Um, If I walk in, oh man, it's been a minute since I've been here. That could mean years. Um, I could also say I'll be there in just a minute, and it could literally mean 60 seconds. Um, So the way I use a minute doesn't, like there is no telling what I mean, because it just depends on context. Um, It's a very frustrating thing if you're trying to coordinate with me. I'm like, oh, I'll be there in a minute. And you're like, what does that mean, Luke? Um, That means zero specificity. (laughs) So uh, we like to sometimes make languages a little bit more clean cut than than they actually are, right? Like if you've ever tried to define the term of what does it mean to be dating someone, right? That's a complicated one to parse out. Well, does dating mean that we started dating the first time we ever went on our first date? Or does dating mean when we're like not seeing anyone else and we're being exclusive? Or does dating start only when we're in a quote-unquote, long-term relationship? Or does it stop then? We're not dating, we're in a relationship. Does dating include engagement or not? Like, right? Like, so trying to parse out the word dating in our English language now is a particularly complicated matter. And so all I say that is to say is that the words that the Greeks used for love are not quite as clean-cut as we may like to have thought them to be. So if you've heard this passage taught before, and someone made a big deal about the different types of love that are used in this passage, I would simply say they're being used for emphasis and stylistic reasons, not for philosophical or theological reasons. If you thought that was really boring and a strange rabbit trail, sorry, you know something interesting now. Um, (laughs) But I do think that Jesus is calling out Peter amongst his friends, amongst the other disciples, and is saying, look, you came to me, and you were saying that, like, you're going to be the one to follow me to death, and you didn't. Do you still think that you love me more than these other disciples love me? Peter seems to be saying, no, I love you, but I am not concerned about how my love measures against the love of others. He's dropped the pride. He's dropped the comparison. And he is also, his response also is not typical Peter. Anytime Jesus asks Peter a question, Peter's typical response is to say yes and. Right? If this was a typical Peter response, he would have said, yes, Lord, I love you, and I would, 
you know, fight a thousand armies for you. Like, he would find some way to make it bigger and better. And, Jesus, and Peter is just simply saying, no, I love you. Like, I, I, I love you. And notice that it's an interesting thing that Jesus doesn't ask him, Peter, do you have faith in me? Peter, do you trust me? He's simply asking him, do you love me? If we, there's a couple different conclusions I want to bring out of this. If we are to be Easter people, we must carry with us forgiveness and grace overflowing from the love of Jesus. If we're truly to be people absolutely transformed by Jesus and the gospel, we need to be people who are carrying with us grace and forgiveness that is an overflow of our love for Jesus and Jesus' love for us. This central, central relationship between you and Jesus is the source from which all other things ought to flow. It's the place where character and grace and forgiveness comes out of. There was an interesting question posed. What if Jesus had never had this conversation with Peter? Peter had never been restored. Peter had never gotten this forgiveness. Well, Peter could have carried the deep and weeping bitterness that he felt, and he could have still gone on and done ministry, but he could have done it not out of a place out of forgiveness and grace, but out of harshness. And you know what? I'm going to prove to myself and to others that I'm the better disciple. That's a place of guilt. It's a place of shame. And too much of our Christian life wants to come out of that place where we don't accept the forgiveness of Jesus in its totality, but we're still somehow punishing ourselves or trying to prove to ourselves and others that, like, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, rather than saying, no, that is me, and I've been forgiven for it. It's an entirely different place to operate. I think it brings about an entirely different Peter. Second thing I want to say is that while faith is what connects us to the saving work of Jesus. It is love that holds us there. I don't want to deprioritize the importance of faith and abiding in that. But Jesus says, those, if you love me, you will obey my commands. In the upper room discourse, when he talks about abiding in me and like being in Jesus the vine, he's saying, like, you ought to love me, abide in me, be in relationship with me. If, if we've come to a place of faith, we're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I accept this, like, we need to, that's fine, but if we just stay there in a place of acknowledging Jesus as some sort of concept or person or ideal, we lack love because love can only happen between persons. We have to know Jesus personally in order to have love. We have to be radically oriented around him in order to have love. And this last point I want to make, I want to make really loud and clear, and Cameron preached an entire sermon on this one idea not too long ago, at least sometime in the last year, I believe. But it, it merits saying again, and that is that love of God and love of others is the marker of spiritual maturity. 
all too often, we get into a place where we think that our Bible knowledge, our theological knowledge, our, like, how well we live our life, how well I can host a party, um, how often I go to church, how well put together my life seems to be is the marker of spiritual maturity. When the only thing that Christ is really concerned about when it comes to spiritual maturity is your love, faith, hope, and love, and these three things abide, the most important of these being love. Right? If I can speak in tongues of angels, but I have not love, I am a resounding gong. I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love. I have accomplished nothing. Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you get the core? Do you understand now that it's not about your extreme commitments to me, your words, your, your like saying all of these things? It's not even your critical understanding. It's do you love me? And we need to wrestle with that same question. Do we prioritize our love of God above all things? Do we measure someone's maturity not just because they're gifted at speaking, not just because they're talented at leading worship, not just because they're a winsome person, (coughs) not just because they speak well at Bible study, not just because they're a nice person, Do we look up to somebody because they model the love of Christ well? That's the measure of maturity in the Christian walk. And too often we put other things up there and say, oh, they're just so, like that's a super Christian up there. Well, if they don't love other people well, they're not. And if you want to talk about a problem that's at the larger scale of Christendom is that we have way too many leaders uh, who have not love a lot of gifting, but they don't have love. That could boil down to pretty much every scandal the church has had in a long time. And so us too, if that's the, le- if that's the culture that seems to be pervading our churches, we need to be asking ourselves that own question. Is my love for Christ personally, my relationship, the thing that is being stoked, that's being tended to, that's being brought about? Are we more motivated by external circumstances and appearances than we are by an internal love of Jesus? Do I read my Bible because I want other people to know that I read my Bible? Or do I read my Bible because I want to meet with the most important person in my life, and that's Jesus? If you would, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, We come to you as your children and we ask that you would help us to be humble enough to admit that we have walls of pride, walls of control, walls of self-assurance that we have kept up, that have kept us from letting you into the control room of our heart. Lord, I ask that you would move amongst us, this church, this room, these people, us, me,
and that you would stir up a love for you that would overflow. A love driven by knowing you, a love driven by rejoicing in you, a love that overflows from everlasting. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your love, that we might not grow thirsty, that we might not go hungry. Lord, that you would draw us to you, that all the other things that seem to maybe get in the way of prioritizing knowing you, that you would help us to move those aside, to lay aside the idols that so closely resemble you but are not you. Lord, we come to you with a heart of repentance and we receive your gentle and loving embrace as you call us to know you more and to love you more deeply. Lord, do something among us. Bring us to a place of love and cherishment and abiding in you and your presence and in your work on the cross. And then do something with your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.